0: Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we combine two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I'm one of your hosts. I am Dave Gurney. I'm here with... Joe Hilliard. And Carlos Cooper. And we are so excited to be here, as always. um, Looking forward to talking about uh, a couple films from a filmmaker who we have... Encountered on the podcast before, um, but uh, looking uh, this week at his latest release and his earliest feature film release. Kind of love it when we do that. Yeah, me too. It's kind of fun w- when we get to go back in time and kind of see where the beginnings um, of their craft. were were being put into place. Um, But before we get ahead of ourselves there with the movie talk, we need to get the first part of that equation in our glasses. That's the beer. Joe, you brought something for us.
1: I did, I picked it up at our local beer place that the three of us, I think, mostly enjoy going to. Uh, I gotta tell you, I got this one for the can art. The can art won me over. Sometimes that's all it takes. Looks looks great. Hazy Double IPA. Oh yeah, that poured nicely. Hazy Double IPA always rings my bell, but uh, this is can art for Champion Brewing Company's Daydream Paralysis. They are located out of Charlottesville, Virginia. They opened in 2012. This is my first time to... To dance a dance with Champion Brewing, have you guys had any of their <laughs> stuff? No, I think it's my first. Yeah, I think it might be my first as well. Uh, so this uh, double hazy IPA comes in at eight point six, and uh, certainly is hazy. It sounds, it looks delicious over there in your glass, Carlos. And a double hazy IPA sounds exactly what I need to talk about the film that we're about to talk about.
2: Oh, and what film is that? Well, Tell it us is Young Carlos. Uh, it is the latest from Paul Thomas Anderson.
1: Oh, I'm there at the theater. The beans already. have been
2: spilled. Yeah, and I'm just going to read the synopsis that was written by United Artists releasing for, for promotional for purposes. promotional purposes yeah. because trying to concisely synopsize this might be a bit tough. So what they said is that Licorice Pizza is the story of Alana Kane and Gary Valentine. Alana Kane played by Alana Haim. Gary Valentine played by Cooper Hoffman, son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. All right. So, Alana Kane and Gary Valentine growing up, running around, emphasis on running around and falling in love in the San Fernando Valley in 1973, written by written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, the film tracks the treacherous navigation of first love.
1: That's pretty beautiful. Good. I yeah.
2: think
0: that I think that's a great. It, you're right. It's it's a sprawling film of sorts cuz Along that run that they take, this journey that they're on, there's lots of uh, little kind of uh, you know side journeys that, that they end up on. Um, lots of characters they encounter. Mm-hmm. It's quite a cast. Quite a cast w- w- when you when you start digging into it. Because I mean, Sean two,
2: Sean Penn, Tom Waits, Maya Rudolph shows up. Uh, John Michael Higgins. John, oh, John Michael Higgins. <laughs> We all—if you've listened to this podcast before—you know that I simp for John Michael Higgins. Well, and for good reason.
0: He's—I mean—in the Christopher (laughs) Guest comedy, and if you haven't listened to our Christopher Guest episode or watched those Christopher Guest movies, definitely should get get yourself right, Um, fix that soon. He is marvelous in those, and I don't see him enough lately. I feel like so it's great to see him show up on something or in something that uh, that can use his kind of. uh, his delivery. I think what's the kid's name
2: that we were talking about earlier from Fairfax, Skylar,
0: Schuyler... uh, Skylar Gizondo, Gizondo. He,
2: and, uh, John Michael Higgins, both psych alumni.
0: Our um, interesting
1: Christopher guest, episode to me and nobody was episode, <laughs> Our Christopher guest episode, episode 91. 91. Thank you, Joe. Go back. Yeah,
2: that was a great episode. And one of those, um, you know, we talk about this a lot on the show. One of those, uh, kind of check boxes that I hadn't ticked off. I hadn't seen a lot of those Christopher yeah. guess and I'm glad I finally
1: did because they are fantastic. Well, when you said Paul Thomas Anderson's name, I said, oop, I'll be at the theater because he's one of those directors that's going to get me there. And it turns out my sure. whole family there, I saw this movie two times. The first time I saw it with my with uh, my fiance and her parents, and I they're very mainstream filmgoers, and they like to do things with us, so we were going to go see this film as soon as we could when it opened up. That's how we roll. And we invited them along, but I had to give them kind of like the, I don't know what to expect. There could be some shocking violence. There could be, I, I have no idea. It's a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He,
0: you know, he dabbles. He, he's, yeah. he's definitely had some of those. There might be
1: dogs eating pills off of a floor. You don't know what unsettling image Frogs might. Frogs from the
2: sky. Yeah, you
1: never know. Yeah. Then yeah. all my kids were all in town and they all wanted to see it. So I took them to go see it again. And I'm glad that I saw it a second time. Okay,
2: nice. David, you saw it two or three times?
1: I saw it three. Okay.
0: (laughs) Three (laughs) times within uh, six days. Um, That is baffling. Yeah. Okay. Is it? Is it? Is it? It was my break. Okay. So, you know, this comes to us. It it arrived in theaters here on Christmas, um, or maybe the day before. Maybe it hit Christmas Eve. Maybe I was right around there. But, you know, I had planned beforehand to be able to go see a, a film on Christmas with my entire family. But this. Being rated R could not be that film, um, I didn't think, and so I. But it's uh, not very. There's not a lot. No, well, of that's the there. thing. Once we. Oh, so Bradley Cooper. We forgot to mention Bradley Cooper. Right, right. So, so I went to see it the day after Christmas with just my wife, and uh, you know, all. I've gone to see it three times. I love this fucking film. I right. mean, this is a cinema experience that I pine for. This kind of matinee, walk-in, child predators, statutory rape. Oh,
2: okay. (laughs) Who
0: gets but, statutorily this raped? this movie's
2: so fucking problematic. Okay, wait, 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 wait. wait, But no, but
0: please, but, 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 but,
2: but I don't Who understand. gets
0: statutorily raped in this film? Well,
2: okay, so I, I read a review on the New
0: Yorker. Please just tell me though. Answer that question. You just said statutory hold rape. On. No, 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 no. You put me. You put the term out there. Let me. I want to hear. Let me. No, you. Okay, so nobody does.
2: You're right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But I was. I was getting. I to, hope you do a music drop there where
0: there's like fanfare and. Sure, yeah. I okay, mean, okay, right. <laughs> but
2: you're okay. So you're, uh, this movie's not that good. I. I don't. Mm. I'm. I'm. I've been for the last 24 hours just like reading reviews, tr- racking my brain
1: at how I'm missing something. I have to be missing. something. I have to be missing something. It's Paul Thomas and, Anderson, for God's sake! What
2: and the old, I just the relationship is so troubling that it's hard to get past to I look it's incredibly well acted Alana Hame's great in it Cooper Hoffman's good in it Bradley Cooper is making me like him despite all of my instincts to not like him because he was great in Nightmare Alley and he fucking crushes in this movie Mm -hmm. obviously John Michael
0: Higgins is hilarious Tom Waits is great Oh my God! Tom Waits as Rex Blau is one of my favorite like ten minutes of of movie that I've seen. He's he's great. as that Sean
2: Sean Penn is tolerable, which I normally don't find him to be. Well cast, like a a great part for him. Yeah, a great part for him for sure. But at the end of the day, to say that I liked watching this movie or that I think it's a movie worth watching, I just can't because wow. we're talking about a love story where we're supposed to be down to like root for a 15-year-old and a 25-year-old being romantic. That's crazy.
0: Okay, well I I hear you. And I and listen, it gives And me, yes, and yes, nobody me, has sex, sure, but it's a it's fucking It's one of the most fine romantic comedies I have seen in my life. It is a fine
2: line between like okay, sh- are we is it okay because they never were physically intimate with each other and we're going to ignore all of the emotional complexities of a romantic relationship like this? Like, and just because they didn't physically touch each other, say like, okay, cool. Like it's fine for a 25 year old woman. If you recast this movie with Millie Bobby Brown as Gary and Timothy Chalamet as Alana, it's really problematic.
0: I I I agree with you. I think really that the, like, I I think, I think that the the sexual reversal cancelable. that you're talking about potentially potentially but here's the thing, right? The film is a a lot about Alana like acknowledging that and staunchly saying this can never happen. We are not boyfriend-girlfriend. We are not having this relationship. This is not a thing that we're, is going to happen. And she against dating
1: other people. Yet continues but, to have
0: the relation. I mean, well, I mean, you can be... 15-year-olds fr- and 25-year-olds can know each other. We're not living in a society where there's going to be, like, fences no. up between people well, of different well, no, sure, age but, brackets. So that... I mean, to you saying that I can't... I mean... Is it right for me, as a forty-three-year-old man, to be doing a podcast with a twenty-nine-year-old? Like, do, well, do we draw these lines? That's wildly different. I don't know. Well, <laughs> but it, so uh, that's so
2: unbelievably different and not even. Well, no, but you're in saying way, they can't even form?
0: have a they can't even have
2: a friendship. But they, they, can't they don't, even don't have ever a, a business have just business a friendship.
0: Well, they do. At no point in this film are they ever just friends. Come on. Well, th- now I think from the standpoint that <laughs> I mean, early on. on in the film. Gary, the the Cooper Hoffman character. Yeah. Um, who does a standout job
2: and wildly I mean. unlikable as a character too. I
1: understand that point of view. Really, he's
0: you repulsive. find him wildly unlikable. I
1: understand the point of view. I,
0: well, I'm tr- okay, but I want to hear mm-hmm. why he's wildly unlikable, and then you can tell We're me why you understand for, that point of
2: view. <laughs> We're supposed to root for a kid who like walks around asking every woman that he meets
0: for a hand job just because he thinks that he's got we, money and okay. was like, an
2: uh, he's un, he's, you un, don't, he's pompous. Okay, you took
0: that, you took that scene as being God's honest truth. I took that as her needling Alana. I took that as Frisbee needling Alana, like giving Alana a hard time, saying like, oh, you're in here with Gary? Yeah, he's always asking me to give him handjobs. I thought that was, them ribbing her mm. ribbing her it seems very in line with gary's character i never in the film see him asking he's never crass he, like he that has, he, is he never has asked crass off, crass off camera
1: that. to see her boobs we know that happens. There's, well
0: no we see, we see that inter that exchange mm-hmm. and that's prompted by the casting or the uh, agent conversation yes. the, i mean there's something that leads well, into that topless which by the way before i forget harriet whatever her name is harriet sansom harris great she deserves an oscar for her facial tics. Oh, I mean, God. her facial muscles. She so good. When she's in that scene, yeah. tight close up. I mean, I was dying laughing. The theater was going nuts. Yeah, la- no, laughing she, no, she woman. was. She, I mean, she, she was great in that scene. So, so there,
1: there is a. There are two problematic things in this movie. If you're going to look at it from that perspective, first is the age difference that you've already covered. The second is a hubbub that's going on with an Asian Asian media group decrying a, a, the two scenes with John Michael Higgins. Um, and I think that if those two or one or both of those things offend you and it gets you from being able to get past those things or thing to enjoy the film, I, I'm not going yeah, yeah. Well, to argue well, with you. I understand, you. The, okay, age di- I
0: understand you. the age difference hang up. But, I understand the age difference hang up. But, but the thing it with what you're saying,
2: though... And I think where the difference lies is that John Michael Higgins' character is meant to be kind of repulsive and displaced. Yes. Like, oh, like that scene is not presented as like this is okay behavior. The romance is presented as this is okay behavior. This is something we should be rooting for. We should be cheering when she says "I love you, Gary." I don't, at the I don't
1: end. know if I agree with that.
2: Oh, come the fuck on! Uh, I, I believe that the you whole might movie be... revolves around. No, it. I
1: believe that you might be looking at it through a typical romantic comedy lens. And I, don't, I don't think I that didn't this, even film see this film is trying to put Romantic, romantic comedy a uh, spin on it
2: well first of all they describe it as navigating first love which sure. inherently makes it sure a romantic comedy yeah.
1: my, as per the studio and my first love as a younger man might have been pining for a woman that would have been too old for me i mean and well, i would sure. understand having to navigate that kind of thing and i could see it being problematic for a 25 year old aimless woman for having feelings for a boy that she's clearly said, I I, I should know, we're not going to do it. Society says we're not supposed well, to. I, I, yeah, okay, and sure. And it's a long and winding road to the very end where she has all kinds of... Where they fall in love of, and we're
2: supposed to be happy about All it.
1: kinds of experiences <laughs> that put her off to, quote-unquote, traditional relationships.
2: I, I suppose so. I mean, I...
1: I'm just saying, there's, there's 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 different perspectives in it. Another perspective could be that my grandmother got married and had a, at 14 and had a child at 15, and that was societally acceptable at the time. And yeah. since then, we have drawn hard lines.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you're all again, you guys are drawing like wildly false equivalencies to defend the
1: crux of well, this film. But what if Paul Thomas Anderson isn't saying, "Look, guys, good." But, but rather, here's, here but are here's, two but here's, characters here's my thing. who have intersected in a way that this is where it brings them. Sure.
2: But first of all, they don't just intersect in a way where that brings them. They both are very intentional about the decisions they make. That's number one. Number two is my criticism of the film and the storyline is that it's the way that it is presented to us. Paul Thomas Anderson is, has a very definitive point of view in the way that he presents their relationship to us. And it's in a sunny, rosy, we're going to run everywhere. And mm-hmm. it's like against the I mean, it has the stereotypical rom-com structure a couple that wants to be together over has an obstacle put in their way and then overcomes it at the end that is the way this film is structured and the way that he presents them especially at the end if they hadn't ended up together at the end fine that i can probably go into like maybe the more nuanced like avenues of the way that they react or react to one another or the way they interact with one another, but the fact that they end up together at the end, and she's the film literally closes on her saying, I love you, Gary. It, 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 that, that is Paul Thomas Anderson in no uncertain terms saying, We should be rooting for this not probably great relationship. I mean, I don't know. Well, it's just
0: crazy to okay, me. Okay, okay. Are you, have Why, you gotten it out? Have you gotten it out? <laughs> I'm just like, Can we talk about other things or, or can somebody have another perspective on it? Go for it. Okay. All right. So, I hear where you're coming from. It does not elate me that the film is set up this way necessarily.
1: However. You wouldn't want one of your daughters to be in the same romantic type of when relationship. She's when she's meeting 25, meeting
0: a 15-year-old. Yeah. I would advise her, no, stay away from the 15-year-old. This right. is not a good idea. You right. would say, yeah. do you think it's weird that I, I would I be like, I points? would be like Moti, right? I mean, I would be, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, no, yeah. He's great, which I, I love the Haim family mm-hmm. and and their presence in this film. All the scenes with them, I it thought it Took was me great. out of it completely.
2: Did it? because I know that they're actually related. And so I see them together and I'm like, Oh, that's the band Hayam from 2021. Not this family from 1973.
0: Okay. Didn't bother me that yeah. way. And I didn't, I know, I didn't I know, know it yeah. until after the fact. Um, but, but what I will say is I feel like what, what happens here is I don't think he's judging the characters, right? I don't think he's trying to have that kind of story being told here. I think he's looking at these characters as individuals. Now, if you've read into it a little bit, you know that the character of Gary is based on an actual Gary, Gary Getzman, who was a child actor, who was in the Lucille Ball movie with Henry Fonda, Yours, Mine and Ours, which is very much what they're... I believe he also that. had a waterbed
1: company and a pinball Yeah, it was arcade, on Ed
0: Sullivan, yeah. started a waterbed company when he was like 15, mm-hmm. ended up segueing it into a pinball arcade and eventually get, got, went into production. Now he has a production company with Tom Hanks and he, you know he's a successful Hollywood guy. Um, so I think, you know, from from my standpoint, what I see here is Paul Thomas Anderson, Anderson seeing this very unique and strange story of a person who sort of did things that nobody should be able to do. Nobody when they're that age should be able to start their own companies, have them actually be successful, profitable, do these things, act this way. He had to have been... One of the strangest fifteen-year-olds you would ever meet. Sure, and to and all me, the
1: adults in the film, certainly treat him as so. He's almost well, like a peer equal,
0: right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the major settings of this film, Tale of the Cock, is very much a like seventies mm-hmm. lounge, a real place, you know, by stand, the way. right? Yeah. Ba- based on an actual place that was in Encino at that time, and they had to recreate for the film because it no longer exists, but. um but he's one of the regulars, right? Because he does PR for them, and you know, and, and he's like, you know, coming in there every night, and it's like his place. And in fact, that great scene with weights and Pen, and you know, yeah. it's him walking in. I, you can't tell me you don't love that when he walks in. And he's like, "Ooh, this is an interesting plot development." Yeah, you know, like, I no, mean, it's a good, it's a good scene. Lines, It's get, a I good mean, scene. Yeah. Oh my god. So why you come in? You say like, why would anybody like this film? You're so hung up on the age difference that you can't. Appreciate the film as being about individuals and, and I, not and about I, and I a big social dynamic, you. and I get where you're coming from, and we have to think about that. And I'm not saying that I don't have; pa- it doesn't give me pause, and I didn't feel like. Oh. But it's one of your top five of the year still. Well, we haven't figured that out oh yet. God, I, but
2: I love Clockwork I mean, Orange. This and is there's just, real
1: rape in it. yeah yeah sure yeah i mean not real right but and it's yeah yeah. and the filmic interpretation of a crime
2: but but they don't but it's not presented as something you're supposed to enjoy
0: but also nobody ever gets to a criminal point in this film like and i hear what you're saying i I hear i mean well what are you well okay you you came out with big words criminals okay sure and it never crosses that line she
2: couldn't be indicted i think i think that that's a pretty weak ass argument to say that just because they didn't violate an actual law that well, something wrong isn't happening.
0: Listen, and do you feel at any point in this film that Gary is being taken advantage of, groomed, made to do something that isn't totally his endeavor? I mean, he is the puppet master in this film. He is the one pulling all of the strings. Um, Alana attempts to do uh, her own thing. To things. a
1: degree, I would argue that uh, when she okay. is in the relationship or rather in the job with the um, the mayoral candidate, and then the way that that ends at the restaurant, yeah. which pushes her back to Gary, yeah. he's not pulling all of the strings.
0: No, but I'm saying when she does try to do something, it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. I mean, like her attempts to break away from g- dating the other actor, who's played by Skylar Gazondo, Lance, I think is the character's Lance, name. Yeah. Um, it, t- taking the job with Wax, trying to you know separate herself from Gary and his orbit and everything, it doesn't quite work out because there's this gravitational force to Gary and what he's able to accomplish with his chutzpah, with his mm-hmm. you know sort of. And again, I'm I think Gary is one of the weirdest characters that I've ever seen portrayed in film. The fact that there's a real world sort of you know. Uh, Basis for it, yeah, help smooth it a little bit because actually I didn't know that going into the film, and I, after the film I'm I didn't like, know that until just now. this is the most ridiculous. I mean, I bought it because Cooper Hoffman is really good and PTA is really good, and I think they made it work, but. I was like shaking my head and I'm like, why would they put in all those ridiculous elements? Like, who would possibly go from being a, you know, a uh, movie actor to being a, a mattress salesman to being a pa pa-pa. Yeah. And, oh, there was this guy, okay, and he's friends yeah. with Paul Thomas Anderson. And he kind of thought, well, this is the kind of character who could actually have that kind of gravitational pull to actually woo somebody who mm-hmm. really should be outside their league for many reasons. Sure, And so- I hear where you're coming from, I, and I, again, I don't think that you're wrong for. And 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 honestly, I'm not going to begrudge it destroying the film for you. If it does, it does. I'm sorry to hear that, especially sorry to hear that because some of the best filmmaking that you're going to see is going on in this film. The opening, where you have them meeting, and he's in the line there, and she's working for the photo, I think photography it's like a company. One long shot. It's mostly a long take, not entirely. Right. There are there pulling couple out some cuts boogie nights tricks here. Um. Well, not even that, but it. But anyway. The, they cut when they go into the gymnasium. and they get, you know. I understood, but, but the camera all, really never stopped. But totally moving. timed to the Nina Simone July Tree song, which is a gorgeous Nina Simone song, mm-hmm. which had never stood out to me as much as it does now that I've heard it in this context. And, it, you know, again, films sometimes do that where you're like, oh, my God, this is one of the best. Because now I've seen it three times. Mm-hmm. And watching it each time, it's just a sort of master class in how do you have that sort of like meet-cute moment between Mm -hmm. characters, play it out, have all of the real stakes of the film just kind of laid out, and in a pretty blunt way. I mean, like, again, she's just being, no, it's not gonna happen, Mm -hmm. Gary. Get the fuck away from me, Gary. He he
1: leaves, she walks past her employer, the photographer, who gives her a nice big slap on the ass. The casual sexual harassment. Completely legally able to date and have a relationship with this person. But we see alana over and over and over again hit horrible potential male relationships yeah again and again and again which is another reason why she's going back to a guy that fucking worships me at the end of the day that treats me and there you go joe i think like it shows you that again look i don't think that's true either i think gary
2: presents some very like problematic like Toxic traits as a romantic partner throughout the film, which is why whenever Frisbee says that he's always asking her for a hand job, I totally bought it. I took that as a whole. I totally bought it because nothing that he he never shows himself to be like a stand up exemplar. And also, talking about crass, he's like jerking off a fucking gas station bot. I mean, yeah.
0: with his other but 15-year-old That's what 15-year-olds yeah, do. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but, and but, that's one of those moments where you what, have to go back to Alana and but, you're like, yeah, she's right to not be taking <laughs> yeah, this seriously. She, what she 15 should get 15-year-olds away.
1: 15-year-olds don't do. No. And, and hold on. And, oh, what, and, and the And the world that Gary, that we're seeing here, Gary's world, I'll call it, Own businesses, multiple businesses, start businesses, fail at businesses. Have a rapport and a charm with adults that gets him in a door that fifteen-year-olds just don't get into. Sure. Um, When Alana gets into Gary's world, uh, before you know, there's any. I mean, there's there's a hope for a relationship from Gary, but like you say, she's rebuffed it, and now they're business partners, which is a control thing. I think that Gary is putting her in a position to where they have to work closely with one another. He has access to her. Mm -hmm. But Gary's world, man, it is filled with crazy characters and vignettes. And I think that that's really the point of the movie because Paul Thomas Anderson in in interviews has said, I tried to make it very personal. A lot of these stories happened or a version of them happened. Most of them to Gary gets. As he goes back into his childhood he wasn't uh, he was much younger in 73 when this film takes place but he's talked about you know i still have fond fond memories of those 70s and really wanted to recreate them accurately gary's world is a magical world yeah he he's he's jet-setting across the country to appear on television and then come back and starting businesses and meeting john peters and meet uh, uh, the, the orbit that he is in puts him in touch with the the next little vignette and the next little vignette and it gives the movie to me a feel of Certainly not a strong A to B na- narrative, but this winding road through Gary's world. Yeah, and to me, I enjoyed that aspect of it very, very much. Yeah, the the pacing, the it's almost like um, Inglorious Bastards. I, I felt a lot of Tarantino. I, think I feel here. more
0: Once Upon no a Time in Hollywood. I, I, I felt I felt I, that To, too. to me, Just the time the, with Cliff the capturing Bush the time Spall period, where, yeah. being in Southern California. Having the radio as a regular kind of recurrence, the the DJ's voices that you would hear at times. Mm-hmm. I love that ad for uh, Todd Rungren's Something Anything that shows up when they're sitting in the car mm-hmm. while he's, you know, getting a burger with his mom and sees yeah. Alana show up with, uh, with uh, Lance. With Lance. Um, later when they see the DJ, who's actually uh, a real voice actor, aping an actual DJ from that time period, doing the uh, Fat Bernie's mattress commercial mm-hmm. for him while, while they're in there. Um, it, you know, it it has so many of those little touches. It, it made me think like this is kinda his once upon a time in Hollywood in a certain way. Like again, it's a little more on the fringe of the industry because Gary's kind of on the outs with it. I also love the kind of sad counterpoint of this. I mean, that one shot of him in the room, waiting to audition, when he's in that row of other boy like actors 10 year olds. who are all right, who yeah. are well, yeah, probably like nine to twelve year olds uh-huh. who look nine to twelve versus him, who has hit fifteen and, and gone through puberty, two feet and he's taller he's than everybody. Definitely else. a he's a large man. I mean, uh-huh. like he he's b- physically become a large person, and you know Maya Rudolph playing the casting agent or whatever, working with the director, and just her facial expressions. I mean, I love that Paul Thomas Anderson knows Maya Rudolph, his wife that well, that like, okay, I'm gonna put her in here and she's gonna be able to say everything. She doesn't even say, but like five words, but does it all with her facial expressions in terms of what's going down in that room. This kid is aged out of his thing. He can't do this anymore. This isn't gonna be his thing. So the you know the mattress thing, as much as it's opportunistic, it's like, it has to happen because he's not gonna be able to continue being an actor in the way that he had been. He can't mm-hmm. use that charm to be the precocious kid anymore he's gonna be seen differently. And so th- there is this kind of like, I mean, again, I know Carlos isn't gonna to wanna to hear this and, and isn't gonna maybe agree with me, but I think that this film actually is a lot about like how maturation, aging, one sense of responsibility, one sense of what is important, changes a lot over that period of, you know, from when you go through adolescence up until you're really probably through your 20s, which is kind of, Alana's on the the older end of that, right? But she hasn't found her place. No, she's, she's still living stunted. at home. Yeah. She has been working as an assistant for a photography company that obviously does very little for her, and in fact has somebody who's probably running it, who's sexually harassing her on mm-hmm. a regular basis. Um, and is kind of floundering, right? It just doesn't quite know what to do. And here comes this person who, much earlier on that spectrum, has vision and kind of just feels like if if I'm just out there and I put myself out and I do these things, Things are going to happen for me. And, it you know, part of that's fueled probably because he did have success as a child actor and he was getting roles mm-hmm. and he and he made money. And then he starts this PR company and it actually gets clients and he has this kind of cash. Well, also, the
1: when you're in that situation, doors open for you in a way that don't open for, you know, if you have a level of celebrity, we see it when he's talking to the stewardess on the airplane, <laughs> right. oh, you're one of the actors and her she doesn't know his name, but her right. d- demeanor changes. He has lived a life up until this point where doors have been opened and I think he's got just this like fearlessness of yeah, doors are going to open for me. And they they do. They close a couple of times in the movie as well, but Yeah. It meandered a little bit during but uh, during the waterbed part. I was feeling the drag. I was feeling the drag the second time. Yeah, I but never other felt, than that, I'm I pretty, never felt the drag. I'm I pretty th- enthusiastic about it. And I knew that the, we would talk minimally about the, the, the two things that people are, are finding are the most problematic about the film.
2: It's funny that you say that because I found one publication that said anything about it
1: about anything the age thing.
2: anything critical about i
1: looked it. up some youtube videos and then there were this was much this was a this was a carlos opinion or a david opinion i loved it or it is so icky that this is should be illegal
2: well, i don't think it should be illegal but i just i just i i just don't understand the
0: fondness for it but but I, then you've count you've 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 mentioned several scenes that you did find you, performances moments And as Joe said, I mean, even though it is a love story, a lot of it is about what these characters encounter along that journey, right? I mean, like, the scenes aren't all him saying like, oh, Alana, Alana, please come, you know, date me. I mean, that's set up early. And then clearly that's sort of a, you know, there throughout. But I mean, their interactions with the casting age, their interactions with the, the um, uh, you know, at the tail of the cock with, you know, Jack Holden, this, you know, the Sean Penn's character, Rex Blau, the interactions with the, um, with uh, John Peters, the Joel Wax story, which actually has this kind of really profoundly sad element to it that yeah. really existed. And, sure. you know, not just for Joel Wax, it did for him, but, you know, yeah. also for countless numbers of people throughout and up through to this day, really, I mean, there are still people hiding it and still feeling yeah. like they need to stay in the closet. But certainly in that time period, that was the norm. Like you weren't mm-hmm. going to get where you wanted to go. Especially if you had
1: political aspirations. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Um, it wasn't, you know, until like, what, five, six years later that Harvey Milk was able to kind of overcome that in San Francisco. But that was also a very particular in time. In San period. Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, I mean, to me, and it, you know, and then and, and I love that scene between her and I'm going to forget the actor's name, but uh, when she's walks him home to the apartment. Joel Wax sort of jilted Michael, boyfriend. Yeah, Michael. I Michael. don't know the actor's okay, name, yeah. but the character's name um, is Michael. And he you know, and he's like, you know, do you have a boyfriend? And you're like, no, yes, kinda. And you know, he said, Is he a shit? And like She was like, Yeah. Yeah. And like they all are. And like that right there is kinda we're all shits. All probably at least men. We can say all men are shits. And certainly Gary is a shit. Certainly, Joel is a shit in his own way. And I think th- there's something profound about, like, you end up having to accept people for their flaws and, and the stuff that hangs you up about them. And if you can't, then it's just not going to happen. But eventually, you're going to have to find somebody whose flaws you are able to accept because they're all kind of shitty.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that I think it's slightly gracious towards the film that you can take away the... Gary Alana romance from all of the scenes that follow because even though it's not the focal point of everything, it's this huge underlying current between all of it. Like in every scene, he's either trying to manipulate her or trying to make her jealous or she's trying to make him jealous or, you know, he's trying to impress her or something or another and I mean it's like and that stuff happens in love no it does I mean it does I mean I found that
0: all very relatable I will
2: say sure but my point is that to try to reframe this as being something other than a love story by talking about these vignettes and the things they understand I mean it's it's not accurate because the yes, they do encounter all of these things. And yes, there are these vignettes and yes, there are moments like the driving backwards in the truck scene is exhilarating. Yeah.
0: It's amazing. Oh, it's, and she did that. She learned, I I mean, I look, she actually insisted on, I want to do my own driving she learned to drive the truck, took a week course to like be able to drive a big truck like that, and they actually had her back down that windy... I That's mean, insane. It is. And it's yeah. beautifully shot. It is. Really well edited. Um, absolutely. And so that, right there, that sequence, is there an element of the fact that they have this sort of romance? Yes, it's there. Especially at the end. Fr- but it's a freaking tense it, it's, action scene in it a certain is. way. And I mean, wow. and I I, I mean hold, hold
2: on, because... Because you're right, and like I like I can acknowledge that. Just like I can acknowledge in Spider-Man: Homecoming, there is six minutes of the most well-executed tension and suspense from when he goes to pick Zendaya up and when Michael Keaton drops him off at the him and Zendaya off at the dance. Like mm. that whole time where he sees him, and it's like, yeah. when are they going to figure out? Like when is this going to come to a head? And that's the, so tense. And I can acknowledge that as a six-minute masterclass in filmmaking. Yeah. It doesn't mean I love that movie, but. I can acknowledge the parts of it that are good. And with this one that, I mean, I think I do think that if this were about one of the two characters, like if we followed Alana through these things and Gary popped in and out every now and then, and it was more about her then I could have been on board. If it was more about Gary and he's going on this path and meeting these different people and getting in these kooky situations and Alana is someone that pops in and out and is kind of like, you know, there is maybe a through line, but I think having it be about both of them It kind of hurts the film in a way. Mostly, at the end of the day, I can say that it is a very masterfully made film. It's shot great. It's acted great. I do dislike some of the music choices just because I think I've said it on the show before, but when you use wildly popular songs from a certain time period, it's kind of like cheat codes. Like When I left this movie, the main thing that I... Took away from it was I found their relationship icky and I love David Bowie. Like, you know, and y- using something like that, it's like everybody loves that song. Of course, they're going to love that scene. Anyway, I will get this movie does get a 10 out of 10 for me though because of the Bubble Puppy song that plays in it. Do you catch it? Yeah. Do you but, catch it? But then but, no. but you just said
0: that it, it <laughs> fucked up the soundtrack. So I don't get it. Like, you can't listen if you do 20 Hidden Chestnuts and you include one or two big hits. I'm giving you a break on the big hits. My, Seriously. I I, I mean I think, I think I think my I think my problem is that we get And a... Life on Mars isn't even
2: a big hit. It's a oh, memorable Bowie Everybody song. Everybody loves that song.
0: Yeah, but you know what? I bet you play it for you play it for 20 people ages 15 to 45, 55 right now and I bet you'd have maybe three of them know that song. Oh, that's oh, I crazy. Take that bet. <laughs>
2: that's wild. I take no, that bet. I take that
0: bet all day. I take I don't know. you know on that bet. You don't spend time with students, do you? You you uh, well, you, you, that's you, you lurk in a record shop I, yeah, all day where people who like music insular, come yeah. and spend time with you. That's fair.
1: Dude. Did you say work or lurk? Lurk. I do lurk. Okay, <laughs> if, so.
0: If it's, uh, you know, if if we're talking about the regular crowd who would show up for, I mean, even music lovers who would show up for whatever, the Kevin Fowler show or is he a guy? Is that a Kevin thing? Kevin Fowler's a guy. Okay. Okay, like, you know, they're not gonna I wouldn't ask Kevin Fowler
2: people about David Bowie. But but that's what I'm saying, the average person. But the average person's not going to see Licorice Pizza anyway, which, why it's called Licorice Pizza, I'll never understand, and I have a problem with that as well. But You didn't see the Fast Times at Ridgemont High thing? (laughs) (laughs) My larger point, though, is that I would rather you flip those. Like, Life on Mars is playing in the radio for 10 seconds as they turn it off, and then there's a scene to Hot Smoke and Sassafras that, like, you know... Is more of a focal point. I think. I think you do those the other way around, and it's more
0: interesting. It's like. It's like the way when like. Well, I. But I again. It's like opening with that July tree sequence. July tree is not a banger that people are going to know. I'm not
2: saying that every absolutely every single song is, but like let me roll it. Like I mean I don't know.
0: that. that's also, too, that's one that I don't think a lot of people, like, I get it. I get where you, and you grew up, listen, you grew up in a household where classic rock was a thing, and you own a record store, and you have a particular view of it. These are pretty obscure, even though they were popular at the time, the few ones that you're pointing out, to a contemporary audience. These are kind of bold moves still, I think. I
2: think that, I think they're... Songs that maybe people, if you said, what's your favorite David Bowie song? They're not gonna say Life on Mars. They won't. Or they say, what's, what's your favorite Paul McCartney song? They're not gonna say Let Me Roll It. But it, they're those songs that when you hear them, you instantly recognize them. Even if you don't quite place who it is that's singing mm. it, like everyone can hear, let me roll. And, they like, yeah. and it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. That's a hey, like, great song. You know? well, but,
0: but I think it's also, again, like I like it that he goes back and he digs where he digs. I think there's some great chestnuts that he pulls out a la Once Upon it, it, a Time in Hollywood. Also, there's absolutely no
2: way that a 1969 song from a San Antonio, Texas psych band
0: is still playing on the radio in 1973 in California. Well, I find it again, unlikely. I don't know. There, there were some pretty <laughs> interesting stations, especially in a town like LA. I mean, you think about KCRW yeah, 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 yeah. They weren't corporally that, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, That's I, fair, I bet, that's fair. I've never, ex, I've never experienced real radio in a big city. Nor before. have I. <laughs> that's the thing. But then when I do, like when I stream one of those, I'm like, oh, wow, they're... Like, if I had grown up in L.A., I probably would have heard these bands 10 years before I did. Um, yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from. At the same time, I'm kind of like, that's that seems like a really... Oh, but like, to, to to cap off my point, The age difference though, point I get. <laughs> to
2: cap off my thing is that, yes, I can acknowledge how much of this film is so masterfully executed, and there are moments of it that I do really like, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm not there's a 99% chance I never see this movie again. And it's because Hmm. why do I need this story about these two people? I just don't think it's a story that like really needs to be told. And if it is going to be told, it needs to be telegraphed from the jump that like, Hey, this is based off a real kid because without that piece of information, it's wildly less interesting. Hmm. Without that piece of information about Gary Getzman, it's a, like male fantasy about ensnaring an older woman that you think is attractive and getting your way with her, you know, without that piece of information. Cause like, as I was watching it, I'm like, Oh, this is like a kind of hypothetical of like a Danny Bonaducci type of person, like a child star that burns out. Like Mm -hmm. I read Gary the entire time as like, here's a child star who's burning out right now. He's a con man. And eventually he's going to end up probably a drug addled predator or something like that you know like <laughs> the, the future is not bright for this kid because of Aww. and and but of course Maybe now
1: pinball business just really takes off of it course did. now
2: they did well now knowing what i know yeah. but see that's the thing though is without knowing that and without yeah. pitching the film as like based on a true story or anything like that i have nothing to go on that this is based on anything factual right. or like Based in the real world, it does seem like this weird male fantasy thing. Uh, I think that it is. Well, of course. But like, but it's it without knowing that, I mean, the idea of asking people to do extensive reading on your film in order to be able to adequately enjoy it is kind of wild. You know, like I, 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 I should be able to. To either go into it knowing like, oh, there's some truth in reality and like this, some of these things actually happened or just be able to watch it and be like, oh yeah, this is like cool or interesting or whatever. But at the end of the day, two white people with like wildly a hugely inappropriate age gap falling in love is not a story that I find interesting. Just like I didn't like call me by your name. And to your point earlier, I also didn't like once upon a time in Hollywood. And so if I, if someone had made that comparison to me going into Mm licorice pizza, like before that, I probably would have had my expectations lower for Mm -hmm. it. But until I talked to my wife after we watched it, I had not heard a negative review of this movie. Mm. She also did not like it, mm-hmm. uh, mm. and I had I had only heard people like literally jizzing their pants over it. And so I thought like, oh, this is going to be incredible. I'm gonna, my mind is going to be fucking blown by this movie, and it was just not in the way that I expected. That's, so I, I'm, I I'm it,
0: terribly disappointed to hear that. I saw it with terribly two
1: boomers, right, uh-huh. the first time, uh-huh. and the second time I saw it with uh, age. 16 to 22 closer to gary yeah and then well, after we all saw it we all congregated for dinner mm-hmm. so at the dinner table was a 16 year old and a couple of boomers uh-huh. and everything in between yeah talking about a movie and it was really fascinating because my parents-in-law lived through at an age where they can really remember the oral oil crisis yeah and his thing was like, they wouldn't, the waterbed part and the oil part, that they didn't get that right because they wouldn't <laughs> have been in, you know.
0: Though I, though that is what crushed Gary's business. Right. Yeah. yeah Right. And like, then. Arabian the, vinyl. And then the
1: kids. What do you call it?
2: Arabian vinyl?
1: Arabian vinyl. The finest oh, vinyl. It's so funny. Then the kids, my kids, all had a problem with the Asian joke punchline. The, yeah. The Asian voice punchline um all had a pull like cancel this movie like you know outrage oh, wow. yeah
2: i thought i just i thought that scene was funny because of how well, absurdly despicable it is well but
0: it, okay absurdly despicable and yet completely consistent with the time period yeah. yes the, I, people were still doing that in the which 80s. has been I, pta's I, I can defense remember of the scene I can remember when I was a kid, people doing that dumb Asian voice. Me Chinese, me play joke, right. exactly. me put pee, pee, pee in your coat. Exactly. I was at the playground and when I was, was a kid. And it was just, it was yeah, adults, sure. it was children on the playground. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the 90s where I started to become attuned to the fact that, oh my God, this is like some of the worst kind of like off-color stereotyping. Mm-hmm. The, no, it's, I mean, it's horrible. And yeah, absolutely. Like, so when I see that, it's like partly that recoiling from, oh my God, and then the like, this is what people did. This totally flew the thing all the time. Executed the thing that's fl- by
1: a genius yes, comic yes. actor. So I get their
0: response because they didn't live through the time where that mm-hmm. was the norm. And so they're like, this guy's just terrible. It's like the society, culture was terrible. American but, culture was terrible. It still all, is, but
2: it's- <laughs> But also... It's funny to me that they didn't find him laughable because he thinks he can communicate Mm -hmm. with someone speaking
1: Japanese. And she's playing along with it.
0: Well, speaking English. (laughs) Well, and the big punchline is the first scene you see him, and you think think he he probably understands. He owned a restaurant in Japan for 15 years. He can hear, but he doesn't, you know, he's not able to speak. Then the second scene where she's like, Well, what did she say? I don't speak Japanese." Japanese. It's like. I mean, come on! That is fucking hilarious. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, this is this is how people operated back. I mean, Americans operated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, Truly in the though, 70s. I, I Bradley
2: Cooper is fucking next level in this movie. He's terrifying in this movie. Oh, yeah. and, and what, ooh,
0: he's the worst of the sexual. He is. he's terrible. <laughs>
2: he is a. Lo- I love terror. You want? You uh, like uh,
0: peanut butter sandwiches? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and
2: they're like peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> Chunky or <Are> these? <laughs> he is. I mean. I don't know I, I don't I've never really read much into Bradley Cooper's methods. One thing I don't so know I don't know if with... he's a super method actor, but he definitely seemed like he was on a lot of cocaine. Well, and, <laughs> you know,
0: and and if you don't, like he has worked with John Peters. John Peters produced Oh really the um A Star Is Born and you know, is I guess on friendly terms with him, and actually gave him the green light, like go ahead and do it, and yeah, do this crazy, amped up version of me. Like apparently, Peters was bad, but not anywhere near the kind of monster that.
1: There well, was a scene is. in the trailer and a scene in the post the uh, the credits when they're giving all of the actors uh, another, another the scene windows, while yeah. they're putting mm-hmm. their their name up. Yeah. Where he smashes some windows mm-hmm. that did not happen in the film
2: with uh, like the, the window squeegees. cleaner, right? Thing, so yeah. uh, it
1: was. I wish a it had seen scene, in the scene from after he got to the gas station. Well, I kind of, I kind of loved
0: it, that and and it's something that PTA has done a little bit with uh, like the um. The, there's some stuff I I think it showed up in the trailer for the Master as well as uh, um, if I'm not mistaken, Phantom Thread, where he like he obviously shoots stuff that doesn't make it into the final cut, but he will include it. In the trailer, mm-hmm. he will include it sometime in this like sort of post credits yeah, or the phantom credit sequence.
1: Phantom thread trailer with all the cyborgs. I mean they weren't <laughs> even in the movie. Yeah.
0: Well, and also to call back to I mean I I think one of the things that emotionally resonated in this film for me um very deeply was Cooper Hoffman, given his relationship with Philip Seymour Hoffman mm-hmm. in his earlier films, um Punch drunk love being his other real romantic comedy from his oeuvre, and having Philip Seymour Hoffman be the mattress man in that right. I mean mm-hmm. that that was his character in that, and to have his son playing a mattress salesman. Oh yeah, I didn't in, put that this, together. I mean, it almost brought tears in my eyes just when that whole development happened, where I was like, oh my god, what what a beautiful little thing to have like one of your best friends who you were making films with when you were a young person. Now you're bringing his son into the industry, putting him on the screen, potentially making a star out of him. And... You're, you know, you're kind of making this little gesture there. I think that when you consider PTA, because
1: I call him PTA. When you consider PTA's filmography, there are some that to me that are the highest of the highlights. And then there are some that didn't hit quite as hard. Although, like Carlos is saying, I can see all of this filmmaking technique and all of the skill and craft that went into mm-hmm. making this thing. But it just didn't quite hit for me. This is kind of near the top of that pile. It's not that the, didn't there, quite make it's it. It's not that there will be blood. It's not Boogie Nights. It's not Magnolia. Like to me, those three. Right? I need to rewatch Phantom Thread. I need to rewatch Inherent Vice. I even really even need to rewatch The Master. I've never yeah. seen Inherent Vice. But but those the three, master. I'm calling art beautiful, well made, but but in the middle of his career. I could do the same thing with uh, Wes Anderson. You know what I mean? There's the highlights and then there's the sun still solid, but in the middle, I'm putting this at the top of the middle, but who knows, just like a Magnolia, just like uh, a heart eight, even, I, I could watch it again in 10 years and have a completely deeper experience.
2: Yeah. And I, th- and I think what you just said is it perfectly kind of encapsulates my feelings about it is that it, ju- it didn't emotionally resonate for me. That's what it, that's really what it comes down to more so than just it feeling kind of icky because it felt kind of icky to me. I couldn't emotionally invest in it. And because of that, I didn't have a fulfilling experience
1: at the movies. Yeah. Yeah. You
2: know what I mean? And that's that's mostly what it is. That's, well, that's, I, a,
1: that's an interesting piece of art that the three of us could have such a different reaction. Definitely,
0: definitely sorry to hear hear that you guys felt a little, well, Joe, a little off, Carlos, strongly a, a, off, a little off, a yeah. little off. I, I, I admired me, it and enjoyed obviously, it very much. Go, going back to the theater twice mm-hmm. after the first time to, to see it. That's, ex- th- that's fun. This one is just, I mean, it's it's masterful film, well. filmmaking, and I think it. It sort of delivers on what it's trying to do. And I think, yeah, it is a complicated kind of story, even though it is kind of simple.
1: From Champion Brewing Company, do you mind if I dive in? I said I love the can art, Um, but the can gives so much information. Uh, The tasting notes, it says, and I'm curious if you guys had any of this, tropical, apricot, tangerine, fruit candy, white peach, candied pineapple. That's what it seems like they're going for. Uh, This had a lot of flavor. What'd y'all think? Well, I had Get in my
2: mouth. Um, Sorry, I, 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 I decided
0: did. I was going to look at the can when it, That's Joe, right. Joe talked about the can having lots of info. I
1: liked it. I, I, I liked it, but there's something that, that, that isn't hitting me right with it. I think that... I a little mean, malty. It, it, there's, they tried to pack in a lot of different fruity flavors in this beer, yeah. and I'm not sure that they're all in balance. I, I, I
0: worry can, with this, I, I think... As I was tasting it, I, I agree. I think I think it had a little bit more of a maltiness to it than I was expecting. Although with doubles, that that often happens. Yeah. But I, but I think that part of that probably, and it, and I can't tell what the date is on this, but I have to believe it's probably been on the shelf for a little while. Well, you since know what, since March. Okay, March. This was canned in March. All right, I couldn't make that out. Yours is clear enough for better it says eyesight. So, three yeah, okay. March third, two
2: thousand twenty-one.
0: So we're going on ten months. It, you know, that, that's, it's a little long. I, I, I would be curious to taste this fresh out of the can or fresh out of the tap, close to when it was actually you know released, because I do think probably some of those fruitier notes, which tend to come more in the hops, would be a little bit more pronounced and and help balance it out. It's not a bad beer by any stretch. I mean, I think that it was very drinkable. I I went through my uh, portion and even poured myself a little bit more. Um, I found it very drinkable. But yeah, as far as like a hazy double goes, it's not top of the heap.
1: What is the duty of a top tier beer selling store when it comes to, uh uh-oh, this is a little bit past its prime? Do they take the financial hit if they have to take it off the shelf because they have a philosophy that an IPA, for example, shouldn't be on the shelf longer than X months? I think... They send it back to the distributor, perhaps? I think it has to
0: do a lot with the relationship they've worked out with their distributors and the market that mm -hmm. they're in, right? I mean, like, if you're in a big market, which we are not, like, a really, truly big market, um, I think you can demand a little bit more, and you can... Because the other beer shops are going to be demanding it, mm-hmm. right? Now, if you're the lone voice who tries to start that, I think it's going to be a bit more of an uphill battle. And I think that's what we have in our market is if our beer seller wants to push back on it, they're going to be the lone wolf in there. And they, and then they're right. just going to get cold-shouldered by the They rely and- on an
1: ignorant population of beer drinkers to not even know that this has been on the shelf too long.
2: Partially, yeah. uh, partially, uh, but I do think it's unfortunate, though, because when one of those people tries their first IPA and it's an out-of-date one, they think, oh, I don't like IPAs right. when that's not the case. I think, I think what it is is that when a distributor delivers you an IPA and it's your first time stocking that IPA or it's like the shipment coming in is over six months old, you tell them to go fuck themselves and send it back. Like, you shouldn't be paying money right. for expired... Pro- I mean, though it's technically not expired, but, y- you know, you shouldn't be paying money for that product unless they're clearancing it to you and then you're in turn clearing it b- back, yeah. you know? Like, if, like, a... S- case normally costs $20 which obviously costs more than that but if a case normally costs $20 but it's six months old so they're like okay we'll sell it to you for $8 a case and it's like all right fuck it whatever you and know? They sell it
0: to the customer for yeah,
2: 10 we, then yeah okay yeah then. but but if but you know if you're like oh we're gonna bring in this new brewery we're bringing in spindle tat for the first time yeah. and they deliver you houston hayes and heavy hands that was canned eight months ago you should be like well, I'm not taking that you like, would be
1: an educated buyer at that point you
2: should well you should be an educated right. buyer if that is your job yeah is to buy beer for a liquor store mm-hmm. you should know what the fuck you're buying we you always know? let
1: the breweries know that we have talked about their beer so if champion Brewing hears this I'm just curious what their opinion would be that our first taste was purchased last week eight months after they came
2: I I, I mm, ten months almost
1: yeah. you're right no, actually, to the well, date, yeah, 10 months. We're into the 10th yeah. month. Yeah. Um, I, think
2: they would, I think they would find it abhorrent. <laughs> but I think that they would be... But I think it's I think tough. they would be pleased with how favorable we were about it, given the obstacles in our way. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I think the fact that we liked it enough to... Oh,
0: absolutely. I would try Champion again in the heart. Yeah. You know? Well, and
2: to drink, like, all of the beer that we yeah, have, yeah, yeah. you know? Like, they okay, they'd be like, okay, well, even... I can't imagine what they would think of if the can was a month old or mm-hmm. something. So I think that would be promising for them. But I, it, I would, I feel, if I were a brewer, I'd be disappointed. Yeah, uh, that that happens,
0: and a lot of breweries do. But it's, I think, it's a tough thing to balance where you're going for expansion. You want to be able to sell in more markets, sure. and you're producing it, and you've upped your production. Mm-hmm. But then, once you get to a certain point, you can't have the same kind of rapport with your distributors as you once did, right? Once it gets to that, you're working with 20, 30, 40 different. By firms the time your beer's country, in Corpus Christi, Texas. Right. Like, you aren't <laughs> going to be able to do the quality control yeah. that you would really want to. So.
1: Throughout the supply chain.
0: Yeah. So I I, I think it's a challenge for a lot of breweries Mm -hmm. who are making their way into more and more states. um, And I'm excited to have them doing that. But there is that kind of quality balance that I think gets, gets tougher to achieve. It's tough.
2: It's definitely a challenge and obstacle to face for emerging breweries that are in the wake of expansion
1: well we're going to shake david from his <laughs> daydream paralysis over licorice pizza oh my going gosh. to see it three times and go all the way back to the beginning yeah. of this director's career when we return
0: You know what we're going to do. Now, can I, can about... I offend uh, Carlos's moral values anymore in the second half of the show? We'll find out soon, but at least he has beer to bring to our glasses to help smooth out any of this. <laughs> of, I don't uh... like
1: movies with prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I typically
2: don't like movies with Gwyneth Paltrow, though. We'll see how that plays out here. Uh, I'm a very... Anti- Early Paltrow. Early I'm very, Early Paltrow. very anti-goop. Um, but <laughs> this... Uh, I, I I believe, and Joe, you will correct me, I'm sure, at some point if I'm wrong, but I believe we have another new brewery. Oh, I love it when we do To that. the show. This is Duvel Brewing. You've most likely seen them on the shelves at wherever it is that you buy beer at some point. I feel like they're around. This is a single fermented Belgian golden ale. First time? First time, I First think. time. Nearly 150 years of brewing experience, tradition, and innovation come together to create this exceptional golden ale brewed in belgium with two row summer malts and noble hops then dry hopped with citra duvel single fermented is crisp beautifully balanced and remarkably refreshing
1: and what's the duvel flagship beer that everyone has seen at the probably even at the grocery store
2: i see i feel like i i can see the chalice with the duvel logo on it more than i can I any other it's of a of their belgian
0: bottles. white uh, or wit i i could be wrong
1: i've definitely had it before
2: I don't think I I don't think I've ever had anything from it's a them, Belgian ale.
1: And yeah, but it's not got wheat. It's got the same, you know, you yeah, yeah, yeah. recognize yeah. The, the logo and all. I'll find a better picture. Okay. Yeah. I'm
2: excited to try this. My dad got this for me for Christmas. It was like four of these. Oh interesting.
0: Cans. The nose I'm gonna say right off the top, the nose is kind of reminding me of Budweiser. Oh, but, interesting. I mean that that's you
1: so, know So that flagship is a Belgian strong ale. Um also called their Duvel Golden Ale. So I imagine that this variant is just, you know, the single fermented aspect to it. Could be. Looking forward to it, Carlos. Thank you. What would you say the ABV on this was? 6.8. No. Nah, decent, decent. Not a Budweiser, that's for sure. ABV-wise.
2: Um, so, yeah, be interested to give this a go. Thanks for bringing it. Never a bad idea to follow up a really hefty IPA
1: with something crisper yeah. sure well it poured crisp it looks like a, like a miller light or something like that in your yeah
2: taste. it's yeah it's real it's real clear uh pale kind of golden yellowish color okay nice head to
0: it so well, back so i'm f- just just uh I'm, I'm reading the difference here with the classic duvel is that it undergoes secondary fermentation right. in the bottle mm-hmm. with this they cut off that fermentation and they dry hop it with citra and it's cold filtered. So it's a little crisper and should have more of a hop character
1: than the classic Duvel.
2: Okay. Wonderful.
1: We were having a conversation before any of us had seen Licorice Pizza. Carlos, who was your idea to pair it with uh, Punch Drunk Love. Because, yes. as you said, David, that's his P- PTA's other famously kind of romantic comedy yep. style film that he's mm-hmm. made. But and then someone said, no, let's go all the way back to the beginning because it's always fun to do that. So we're going to be discussing Hard Eight, and we have not discussed who is going to do the synopsis.
2: We haven't. One thing we also didn't discuss was John C. Riley's cameo in *Licorice it's Pizza*, amazing. which As I found delicious. Lynch. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. That was awesome yeah. at the teenage fair.
2: And it's—I mean—that's it's a blink ins- and you miss it kind of. That's one. it. That's yeah. inside Just hear baseball. That voice and you you know have to. Who you're yeah, you have to be very familiar with John C. Riley's voice yeah. to pick him out because right. he's in full.
1: Herman Ed, Munster, gear, Herm, yeah. Herman Munster, yeah, uh, gear yeah. looking like Frankenstein. The other option that we had this week was to pair our
0: Frankenstein's f- monster. I should say, geez, yeah, come listeners on, are gonna we did know. Frankenstein. He said it was Frankenstein. No, it's Frankenstein's monster, folks.
1: We and did Frankenstein. we did Frankenstein in all horror October two thousand twenty. Sure David, you yep. should know these things. By I now. know. But the other idea we had was to pair it with another new film because as we approach our end of the year list and the uh, Oscar nominations will come out early February, we've got a lot of films to see. We have a shit ton of catching up to do. So I well, it's
0: it's. The it's these award season release schedules everything yeah. gets packed in at the end of the year especially yeah. if we're in the, you know one of these secondary markets like sure. we are some of this stuff we're not even going to get to see on any screen other than our own home so
1: we manufactured a list today yeah. together mm-hmm. on a little chat that we have of the films that we're going to want to see try to see before yeah. we do our year end list and I thought it might be fun to go over that during at during After Hours. Patreon.com
2: slash Green Movie Podcast. $5 a month gets you a bonus episode every single week. That's where we're going to talk about that. Also, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that we are almost a year to the day to the recording of this podcast, to the release of one of the most uh, controversy-filled After Hours <laughs> episodes that we've ever recorded. Uh, it involves a certain barrel aged stout <laughs> and a certain degree of exclusivity. And we now have some closure on that That's story, true, yeah. which we will also be discussing in after hours, uh, which I feel like a lot of people that listen to that know the, mm-hmm. know what happened with that anyway. But I, I I've had a quite an emotional beer journey over the last year is what I'll say. But enough of that, we're talking about heart eight and I synopsized this to Kylie earlier. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Please. Um, Heart eight is a film about, uh, okay. So it's, it's a film about a man named Sydney. He's an older man who encounters a man named John who is down on his luck. He offers to help him out and, uh, John needs $6,000 to pay for his mother's funeral. So Sydney says, well, you know, uh, if I gave you $50, what would you, you know, what would you do? He said, oh, I probably eat it. And he's like, well, that's not going to get you $6,000. Let me show you how to get $6,000. He takes him to Vegas, teaches him how to game the system
0: Mm -hmm.
2: to kind of launder scam money out of these casinos. Uh, And they form this bond and everything's going swimmingly. Until a cocktail waitress by the name of Clementine, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, enters the fray,
0: and uh, a security uh, and a
2: security uh, uh, guy named Jimmy, played yeah. by Samuel L. Jackson, whose hair has come a long way over
0: the years, <laughs>
2: uh, ever changing, ever <laughs> changing, and uh, and you know things He's just
0: coming off playing jewels on this one, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and,
2: and, and things get a little uh, chaotic at a certain point. Yeah. Um but it is really the story about this kind of chose chosen father-son relationship, surrogate surrogate. Right. surrogate thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Surrogate father-son relationship. Um then there's a big twist and we learn why Sydney has the motivation to act that way toward John.
2: Which right. my god. Um but I just I just want to say Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. Chef's kiss. Sure. I mean in in general when i saw him in this movie i was like oh i'm excited to mm-hmm. to see this i, I just I... And we're seeing the birth of
1: that relationship because he appears in many Paul Thomas Paul Thomas Anderson films. Yeah, uh, fam- not enough
2: recently. Famously. Not, not he's not in enough of anything recently. I feel at least that I've seen. I mean, he's still
0: working, but he's. I he's know he is, but 90, he's ninety-one, something like that. He's yeah, he's, he's pretty. There. The library
1: cop in Seinfeld. Oh, come on, give him props. Well, <laughs> cool, but that uh, was thirty years ago. Then you also know. see for the first time in a Paul Thomas Anderson, but because, Dude, because he of is course name. it's going to be it's his first film. You get to see Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, in a electric in, in the role, five minutes damn he, gets. Does he act, man damn he, he, acts the hey, shit. <laughs> he acts the shit out of that scene
2: yeah. it is oh it's yeah that that uh, he's got a mullet he's just a shit yeah he's to, so good at it thomas
1: anderson's films to me can be described typically as dense meandering sometimes i think if, meandering is
2: he's if he's you think very, about
1: the uh, runtime of magnolia the amount the run time of time of most of his films. the amount of time covered in boogie nights mm. the they're they're sprawling they're the dense. original cut of hard eight was two and a half hours they've Was got, it really they've, they've got these huge i'm glad boobies. he got it down to an hour 40. yeah
0: no he i mean he even says that that was a bad cut
1: of yeah, the film that, yeah but yeah you, they're hugely ense- huge ensemble casts, and everyone gets a little highlight, even if their story this, this is this not, one. Not as hugely none ensemble. of that in here. But no. what is the Paul Thomas Anderson of this first seed? You know, of yeah. this first offering. Some fantastic movement of the camera. The camera, I don't think, really ever stops moving. There's a couple of shots that are still on. Sydney when he is in a level of distress or about to commit an act that we can probably talk about in a second. But otherwise, through the casinos, I mean, through the 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 the, the elevator music score as they're like walking through and learning the the, the casino gambit there.
2: Music done by John Bryan, who it, was his go-to before Johnny
0: Green. It is electric,
1: mm-hmm. and you cannot take your eyes off of the screen during that first I don't know half hour of the film. Any Well, of it. it's it's this interesting
0: yeah, yeah I, I I agree with you. Like he moves the camera a lot, especially when we're in the casinos. But actually, that opening in the coffee shop, mm-hmm. there's a lot of static. You know, it's a lot of sitting there with the characters, kind of taking them in. Primarily Sydney and and John at that point, who we don't really get other characters. Close
1: up cut ins of interesting details that help propel the story along. Right, yeah. right. The pouring of the coffee, the stirring yeah. of the coffee, the T- sipping the of the coffee, yeah, the lighting of what. the cigarette, the 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 handling of the chips with the cashier. I mean, like, cut in, close up. Yeah, We need to see the details, then let's pull back again to show me a wider berth.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, I think you're right, Joe, that he was already showing that eye that he has for for that kind of camera movement and how to tell a story, though not, like, super kinetic, frenetic camera movement like you would get in a lot of the filmmakers of that era when they were coming out in the 90s where it was, like, starting to bring more of that music video kind Mm -hmm. of aesthetic into... Like, he didn't go that route. Mm -hmm. I mean, he wanted something, I think, a little bit more classic in terms of setting up shots nicely, more the camera movement that you'd associate with an Orson Welles and Greg Tolland than you would with, uh, you know, David Fincher even. But, the you know, I think the other thing that really strikes me, and Heart 8 is a film, I'm glad that we returned to it because I hadn't seen it for a long, long time. um, Going back to it is his innate sense of how to pair performers with roles that, and he talks about it, like he writes for certain actors. He wrote this film for Philip Baker Hall, essentially. I mean, he he conceived of this character as, how can I use this actor who I love, who he loved from his film Secret Honor with Robert Altman, where he plays uh, Nixon, um, loved him from Midnight Run, where he plays a character named Sidney, <laughs> um, and wants to bring him into this world and kind of think about how to do that. And Baker Hall just does such an amazing job with that performance. John C. Riley as well, with that kind of naive goofiness that he has. Perfectly cast. Which is funny, because now he's become known as a comedic actor, and there's some comedy to to what he does in this film, but finding a way to cast it in this kind of dramatic scenario, that it really works well. And I'll even go to Gwyneth Paltrow, who, like you, Carlos, like you. No, she's great in it. I am not a huge fan of her as a performer, certainly not a huge fan of her as a... Influencer or brander, or whatever we think of her as now, um, Apple creator, but artist. uh, yeah, artist, maybe. But boy, she was right for this role, she's great, and she movie. delivers on it in a big way. And Samuel L. Jackson, I mean, like, mm-hmm. kind of the four main performers here, these are just really great roles for these people to play. And is the story that, like, breathtaking or mind bending no
1: it's a fairly really meat and li- potatoes li- kind really of story and it's certainly an a to b story
2: yeah i think i think what i liked about it is that you had characters with real you know ident- identifiable motivation you know characters that wanted Flawn characters flawed characters sure but characters that wanted something Characters that were work that were striving for something or that were trying to get somewhere or like a young you know. man
0: trying to start in the world and, and start his own businesses. No, that was the other movie. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> we too did, old we David. didn't like that. One. We'll like too old, one. David. <laughs> you know, Gwyneth Paltrow was playing a 30 year old in this film and John C. Riley was 20. That was he really 20 in this. <laughs> I'm just no no with
2: you. i'm 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 genuinely i <laughs> no i don't know I what it is
0: about they never talk about age i
2: meant to look it up well i know in the film they don't but i meant yeah. to look up his age as i was watching it my guess is he
0: was probably he's 25
2: he always looked exactly the same he it's looks crazy. younger to me in this actually I it mean, struck he does me look the a first little younger because but.
0: I, I guess just seeing him more recently and stuff, like he's starting to look a bit older to me. Okay. And then I go back and I see this and I'm like, oh, he did have kind of more of a, you know, puppy I mean, he was, dog, he yeah, he was slightly thinner. Yeah. But like I see this and I see
2: Cal Nodden from Talladega Nights and I'm like, oh, you look exactly the same, dude. <laughs> just yeah, yeah. slightly fuller in yeah. the face, I guess, but... I, you know, it's funny cuz I was talking to somebody about this. I think the,
0: also Steve Brule probably has damaged me a little bit in terms well, see, of. Oh, see,
2: I yeah, I've I'm familiar but not enough for Oh, it to, I've watched all the Brule stuff. I, I, it's I haven't great, watched yeah. Them all. Um, I was talking to somebody about this recently cuz you know, we just got done with the holiday season and all that. And uh Kylie and I had rewatched Elf and these days I'm not a big Zoe elf fan. But there was a time where Zoe Deschanel's kind of go-to was like a slightly depressed, like downtrodden, kind of, you know, morose type of character. And now she's real bubbly melted, and, literally.
0: you know, like whatever. Manic I, pixie dream girl. That's what everybody says, right? From I mean, before or now? I, isn't that the what she's gone into? Like is she's more bubbly now? She's really bubbly now. Yeah. yeah. Manic pixie dream girl. Okay.
2: okay See, so yeah, I th- yeah. okay, anyway. I I prefer the more depressed Zoe Deschanel. I think it's a better all the real girls uh, Zoe Deschanel. I see. I'm not familiar with that, but like her oh, character, that, in you would that's more depressed. Her, her character in depressed. Elf is very like yeah, uh, kind of eeyore ish, you know. Yeah, yeah, And I same with Gwyneth Paltrow in this. She's like a, she's
0: kind of more more downtrodden for sure. More yeah.
2: downtrodden, more you know not so glamorous as, you know, she tend like her character in the politician that show. I don't know if you watched that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I just, I find this version of her, Well, she she seems more like a down-to-earth character. Yeah, she's more likable.
0: Right. To a certain degree. But then also... But also not
2: likable at all. Yeah, also kind
0: of (laughs) infuriatingly unlikable at times, um, which is great because I think that is something that I love about Paul Thomas Anderson and his storytelling, too, is he... None of his characters are perfect at all, ever. Mm -hmm. Like, there is no such thing as a perfect person, and he loves showing us both those beautiful moments with his characters, but also the really sort of down and dirty and kind of sad moments and, and angry moments. And, you know, um,
1: well, all of the characters have got some kind of trauma or flaw in their story that is, you know, instigating their behaviors and, and Philip Baker Hall, whose movie this is right. For sure. He has given, incredible dialogue to say he says it in a very curt matter of fact way he cuts through bullshit all of the time from the very first scene with um, very john romantic. in the coffee shop there is a see, john and clementine go off and and do some stupid shit and have to call uh sydney in to help them where they have kidnapped or not kidnapped but holding some holding hostage yeah, yeah holding <laughs> hostage a uh, uh, john that uh, was not going to pay right. Clementine for services rendered. And they just make some stupid decisions. He comes in like a, a, a Mr. Wolf fixer and has to cut through their hysterics and just say, no, no, you know, I'm talking to you, and I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to you. I need curt, single, quick answers so that we can get past this situation and maybe right. solve some problems. It is arresting to watch that, that that's man That's an work.
0: interesting... Connection you just made there because I do think there is something like if you look at the wolf scene from Pulp Fiction and how that all plays out and contrast that with how Sydney enters like they're performing very similar kinds of very similar functions mm-hmm. for those characters but it plays out so differently and Paul Thomas Anderson his version of that seems much more real. You know what I mean? Like whereas Tarantino's is like this sort of cartoon version of what a fixer sure. would be when they show up and they're able to kind of like command everybody to do exactly what they like here it's like he's struggling with these people to because they're idiots you know I mm-hmm. mean right but, but like they are idiots this is a stupid thing to do for oh, that amount of money yeah no c- certainly absolutely but then you understand emotionally like she has just been used by this person and th- he is refusing They've to been pay, married and that for is, a few hours right he's with this woman who is his wife now, who ran off and decided to sell her body, you know, while they were celebrating their, their marriage, marriage, you know, and he's kind of realizing, wait, maybe this wasn't the thing to do, but yes it is. I'm in love with her. It's like, and so he's just struggling with these people for basic stuff and they're lying to him and they're not. Usually the fixer scenario is a guy comes in, he's like, you do this, you do this, you do this, let's go. Well, that's, that's the Harvey Keitel, Winston Wolfe showing up and like able to do, and we all love that and we cheer for it and we think it's wonderful when, when somebody plays it up. This does not give you that fun, like sort of, this is like, fuck People get into these situations and they just keep making bad decisions, mm-hmm. and it's kind of lucky that he's able to steer them enough out of the bad decisions to get away. But, but even him, like <laughs> you know, like even how they leave it, it's like it's kind of a question mark. Is this going to be? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, again, that that doesn't end up becoming <laughs> I, the big problem.
2: I but. do like I do like how it how it ended. The kind of lack of definitive closure. Right. Right. Of the whole yeah. Thing. Well, there's yeah.
1: another turn when Samuel Jackson attempts to extort. Yeah. Sydney. Almost successfully. And then you get that kind of shocking bit of violence that I referenced earlier when I was saying, it's PTA, man, anything could happen. Well, now all of a sudden his identity is exposed and the... The the reasons for him taking John under his wing to begin with are exposed. And there's so much more under the surface of this character that when learned reframes the entire film, really. You could watch it again, like after knowing that I see dead people, you watch Six Sense a second time mm-hmm. because the twist, this twist not quite as shocking. But from in a human point of view, instead of a supernatural point of view, it gives all kinds of new... I thought this twist was pretty shocking. ...interest uh, if you were to re-watch it. I, I had forgotten all of it. I had seen Heart 8 so long ago. Heart 8 is considered one of Paul Thomas Anderson's unseen gems. And that's largely because that at, at, while DVD was king, you couldn't find this movie easily. It was difficult to see this. Hmm. So if you see Boogie Nights that are into it, or if you see Magnolia and then you go backward, there, there was a hole for many potential fans of this film. Now um, it's streaming on, where, where did we watch it? I watched it on- we did it rent it on Apple TV. Uh, was it a rental? Oh yeah, you're right, you're right. Rent- but, a-
2: but even then, when I looked on Just Watch, searched Hard 8, Apple TV was the only one.
1: I got it on Amazon Prime.
2: You got it on Prime?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, I. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think I think you're right. This is one of his lesser-seen films. It was kind of a troubled production. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it, it, it,
1: a lot of control wrestling with the producers. Right,
0: with Reicher Entertainment, who he was working with mm-hmm. on it. They wanted him to cut it differently, which was actually probably a better thing in some ways. And look,
2: I'll say, I think he's someone that needs a little push in the right
1: direction in the editing room. I re-listened to his Marin interview today and he says to Mark, oh, if I was recutting Magnolia now, I would have cut a bunch of shit out. That movie was too really? long." Does that's, he say that? That's him talking about his own. I know, like a lot of his movies are too. Movie long. that I love, I I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't alter. Off. You know, hey. I
0: don't know. It's it's weird. Like I hear where you're coming from, and I certainly, I certainly have plenty of movies where I would say we need to cut X amount out of this. Um, his movies just aren't that way for me. Yeah, and I, and I, me I, I, I understand where where people come from when they say it. And and yet I was thinking of that when I was going back for those subsequent viewings of Licorice Pizza. I'm like, I wonder if it's going to drag the next time because it won't all be kind of new to me. And it, was like, and it was the opposite. It was like, I was just enjoying seeing it all play out mm-hmm. and how... Sort of deliberate everything is, and looking at how every shot was set up, and looking at what's included in the mise en scène, and how he's sort of like putting these little details in there—the ticks of the facial ticks of the characters, all that kind of stuff. Um, because again, he works with great performers, he works with great crew who put together amazing sets, amazing costumes, amazing everything, and that's here even in Heart Eight, his first film, where like the the sort of self assuredness in this storytelling, right? Believing that Philip Baker Hall is a charismatic enough presence that I can build this character around him and have it be captivating for, well, I guess initially you thought maybe two and a half hours, but, you know, <laughs> that captivating for a feature length film and really, like you say, carry the film. I mean, this mm-hmm. is his film. There are these other characters, but it wouldn't mean anything without Sydney there. And, and uh, you know, It's just kind of amazing for me to see this play out. And watching this one again after many years, um, I I felt like, if anything, yeah, it is one of the films where I'd find it harder if somebody said, oh, something, like this in Punch Drunk Love, I feel like if anybody came to me and said like, oh, he could have trimmed 20 minutes out of that, I'd be like, you're crazy, that's insane. Saying it about Licorice Pizza, saying it about Magnolia, saying, okay, I get where you're coming from, the runtime is long, Let's go through it and see what you think is expendable. I'd I'd be curious to go on that journey mm-hmm. with somebody, but I wouldn't even sit down with somebody with Hard Eight or Punch Drunk Love with those intentions, because I'd say you're you're foolish. That's I'd say
1: Hard uh, Eight's probably his most just straightforward, accessible film. Yeah. Uh, to to the average American film goer, um, I think so. But you do see all of the seeds of all of the style and all of the mastery of yeah. the technique that we love yeah him, you know and love him for
0: though it is very subdued in its own way right I mm-hmm. mean it does there is like an action element that comes later um
1: but it's brief spurts of action
0: right it's, and it, and it's sort of like those violent outbursts that are made all the more impactful because you've had such a like Sydney is such a controlled character right right he's so tight buttoned mm-hmm. closed down mm-hmm. no this isn't how we this is how he it's is, done he is in this control
1: is. in any social situation that he puts himself into absolutely until he isn't right and then he is
0: right. <laughs> and, you know right until you think maybe until he has he's lost not control but he's not in control
1: samuel L. jackson taking control of a situation temporarily but then you
0: find out no, no he actually did have I, control i can regain control them. here yes. and
1: probably yeah. made a little profit yeah probably
2: yeah. and that that scene is hard as fuck him waiting for him he in the waits apartment.
0: Such a long time. Well, and you see the and, man's resolve. I, it also reminds me. I mean, I, you know, another of his frequent collaborators in those early films, Melora Walters um, or Waters. I can't remember who shows up. She's Jimmy's girl at the be- at the end, right? She's oh, really? the one who comes back with I didn't him. I recognize her. Um, well, she shows up. She has a much bigger role in Magnolia. She is the drugged out daughter of philip baker hall and the girlfriend of john
1: c Riley. there yeah i
0: haven't seen it and which so she has a much bigger part in that she also has a small part in boogie nights but she's great and i don't see her in much stuff nowadays Uh and she certainly hasn't shown up in his stuff in a long time um maybe she quit acting i think she's still doing it but but you know maybe i mean again it's it gets hard for women to get great roles once they get to a certain age it's sad it's fucking dumb. He needs to write a film for her. um <laughs> PTA. If you're listening, PTA, Remember, we
2: know you're listening. I'm sorry that I didn't like licorice Pizza. But yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't this, do, and so yeah,
0: give me another one of these, baby. Well, it, you know, and it's he takes his time with these films. He makes he makes very deliberate choices, and I think always brings characters to the screen that are kind of unforgettable right i mean from the first time i saw this film this kind of philip baker hall as sydney is like burned into my brain and i know like joe you were saying that you had kind of forgotten the twist of oh he's i mean and again we're a spoiler podcast so you know the reason that he's looking after john is because he killed john's father and that's the reason that john doesn't have a parent you know that's what
1: Samuel Jackson can hold over his head that bit of information give me ten thousand dollars or I'm gonna tell John what's going what you did right
2: the only my only complaint with this movie is I would like a lot more backstory on Sidney if possible well
1: what did he do as a thug and uh, that's Samuel Jackson calls him a two-bit hood you know from the old days literally
2: calls him a hood and I'm like okay this man seems very sophisticated at the time we've seen him what kind of like gnarly hood rat shit was he up to in Atlantic City well uh, th- probably more mafia right given that
1: right? he
0: names so, off some yeah. pretty more, he, he, so, mumbles s- yes, or yeah, yeah, whatever yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my god a <laughs> filled <laughs> with <laughs> really handguns
1: that are, he needs yeah. and, yeah, and I mean, yeah, it was, was clearly
0: was... like Atlantic City mafia
2: for sure mafia was, yeah. but like that's the Atlantic City hood rat Shit. You know, like I mean yeah. You know. So yeah, he yeah. Would, I mean, he was clearly like, an enforcer yeah. or a, a hit
0: guy or something yeah. like that. And I just oh, I could watch a whole movie about young Sydney. And that's another thing that I would say to me is a trademark of Paul Thomas Anderson, giving us these characters that are so memorable and leaving us wanting more, leaving us wanting to understand like again. Even if we're talking about Bradley Cooper as John Peters in this film, like, how the fuck does a guy get to become that? And what happens to that guy after? That? Like, we're just seeing this snapshot in time of this character who is just insane. Rex Blau, Tom Waits' character, like, what is this guy like on set when he's actually shooting a film versus just setting up a stunt on a golf course? I'm gonna need three <laughs> wingback chairs, a bottle of Everclear. <laughs> At the sand trap on the eighth (laughs)
2: hole. I also feel like in the trailer for Licorice Pizza, there was footage of Tom Waits on a set directing. I think it was just him
0: shouting the commands like, you know, roll camera one, roll camera two. Yeah. But, yeah.
2: I. I had that memory and yeah. so I what I was expecting when I saw him is I was like, "Oh, like Alana's going to get introduced to him. She's going to get cast in something that he's in because yeah. I just for some reason had that memory and it probably was what you're saying." Yeah. But uh but yeah, I mean, I think that I think that is one of the things that I like about Heart Eight is that we get just enough of the characters to reveal this, you know, significant depth to them. Yeah. And I think I think that that's a a balance that is struck in Heartache that maybe he doesn't always quite nail in every movie he does, and that certainly any director would have a hard time achieving that balance. But giving us just enough backstory to understand the character, mm-hmm. but little enough backstory to have us like so intrigued in what's yeah their whole shit is about. and that's a it's a very delicate balance and very difficult to achieve and i feel like it's achieved masterfully here because clearly jimmy has his own set of baggage yeah oh yeah absolutely clearly sydney does
0: and even john and clementine i mean like yeah whatever's brought them there i mean i think john a little bit more understandably but clementine what what brings a woman to being a cocktail waitress prostitute in reno and having this reno not
2: even in vegas in reno that's pretty rough but yeah, John C. Riley just plays a brilliant, like, kind of dummy, wide eyed mm-hmm. kind of like.
1: Reed Rothschild, man. That's, help me, help that me, scene help me. In the music you know? studio when Marky mm-hmm. Mark is singing so horribly and Reed Rothschild's dancing as if it's the biggest banger he's ever heard put on.
0: You heard what he said. Are you talking
2: about in Boogie Nights? Yeah. More vocals, less bass. So, I haven't seen Boogie Nights in like oh, 10 years. He oh, he
1: plays such a dummy so well. Who? John yeah, C. Riley. John C. Riley.
2: I need to rewatch
0: that one. It's been a long time. Oh uh, yeah, That's yeah. Been, I haven't
2: seen that or Magnolia in quite some time.
0: Yeah, the, I, I, it's it's been a little while for me for Boogie Nights. I did catch Magnolia just a couple of years ago when it was on cable at I some did. point, and and loved it. Just and again, I watch like I find it hard to think of how I would cut stuff from that film because every scene is just. Really, and the
1: scenes really bleed into one another. Well, they do, and, and the, there's like a
0: there's a there's symphonic an, yeah. element to it where they kind of weave together. And the and camera their and the music to working one another. perfectly together. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's... I think that's a movie that's ambition
2: is the screen time is the runtime is merited by its ambition. Yeah, in that movie because it is a very ambitious and at all of film. the closure
1: at the end when all of the kind of pieces that were that seemed to be incong- incongruous with one another mesh at the end and we learned that it's all about the sins of the father yeah. and wasn't it really all about the sins of sydney that perpetuates this entire story because sure. without them he never would have taken john up for that coffee and cigarette in the coffee shop
2: yeah mm-hmm. and this was adapted from a short film called cigarettes and coffee yeah
1: or he went to Sundance on the strength one. of that short and then yeah. turned the it strength of Sundance. He got three million to make this movie. All right. Yeah. Before this fun, fun.
2: turns into an entire episode on Paul Thomas Anderson's voie. What do we think of this beer?
0: <laughs> uh, I'm finding it very tasty and I'm not a golden ale person. People know that, but but I think, you know, the the Belgian yeast bring brings some nice character to it. I'm getting A little fruitiness. Tiny bit. But very clean, very, very crisp. Clean. Um, very drinkable. Uh,
1: I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed by this. It's a nice beer. Oh, I'm going to say all of the above. I enjoyed this very, very much. Uh, it, it, <laughs> there was no lack of balance in the flavor here. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it. I, too, am not a Golden Ale fan. It's not where I'm going to go first at a big 40-tap beer bar. But
2: No, certainly not. If this
1: gets in my glass, I might even order a second one. Good job, Duvel down yeah. it's a good finisher
2: you've had some hefty ones you're about to close out your tab <laughs> why not finish on something light and crisp you know yeah i think that works i don't know if that's everybody helps else's. sober you up yeah i don't know if that's everybody else's normal sequencing but i don't mind finishing on something light and crisp
1: i go no? for the i go for a 120 at the end of the night just <laughs> sure. and i uber home and go straight to bed <laughs>
0: Right there
2: you go. Yeah, no. I at least that's what you're told the next day that you Ubered home in one street. You don't have any recollection of it. (laughs) Ended on. Where's my eyebrow? (laughs) Yeah. Right.
0: There are certainly those nights that do end uh, with 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 hefty uh, options, but. But plenty where, yeah, no, I make the right call. And I'm like, I'm going to steer more into something a little bit uh, lighter and a little bit crisper. Although this is kind of high ABV for what it is. Yeah, Yeah. that's, you know, fairly substantial. But still, I don't know. I mean, I feel like if you keep it under seven, it it, it could be be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Up to and including 5.0 is water yeah 5 yeah. to 7 5 to
0: 7 is like easy drinking easy like a fruit, drinking yeah
1: you're like in a fruit juice phase yeah. and then
0: at <laughs> 7 beer. and above it's like yeah, okay it now, we're, now we're now we're going to have right. trouble yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah for
2: sure well what an episode it has been uh, i don't even have the words to uh, cleverly describe it but what i do have the words for is to tell you that the best thing about this podcast is that the conversation does not end when the episode ends it continues on all of your favorite social media platforms so I'm very curious uh, if you're Team David and Joe or Team Carlos on Licorice Pizza I feel like you're going to be Team David and Joe because so far the only person that agrees with me on this film is my wife and she is legally obligated to agree with me about things um, <laughs> oh, okay. but and the age <laughs> difference is negligible <laughs> negligible yeah. you, uh, you can find us on all of your favorite social media platforms Twitter at Beer Movie Show Instagram at Beer in a Movie Facebook dot com slash beer and movie TX beer and movie dot com is where you can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes absolutely for free if you couldn't already find them on the app in which you are already listening to this episode on but also you can find this great comprehensive beer map that shows you all of the beers we've had from all of the cities states countries parts of the world that we have been to on our beer journey and of course, as we mentioned earlier, patreon.com slash beer and movie podcast is how you can financially support the show and get some bonus content in the process. $5 a month, only $5 a month. Get to a bonus episode every single week. Yes, we talk about beer. Yes, we talk about movies. But we also take it, talk about a great many other things. TV shows we're watching. Uh, movies we haven't seen yet that we want to see. Uh, sometimes you get to help us program an episode. Um, our trouble and given being given or denied exclusive access to high quality beers that we want to get. Um, all of that kind of stuff. So that, that's a great time. And it really helps us keep delivering the highest quality product that we possibly can for you. Cause you know, you get to listen to us go on and on and on about beer and movies every single week for free. So why not get on Patreon? Throw us a couple bucks. I need a know? new pop
1: filter. It's it's not even a joke anymore. It's not a joke anymore. Joe
2: desperately needs a new pop <laughs> filter.
1: And I've never had one, this so one I need to a, get one. This one needs a Viad.
2: That one I've had for probably 15 years. Aww. So it's on its last leg. Uh, But if you're listening to an Apple podcast, please rate, review, subscribe. We know you're going to give us a five-star rating, but please leave a written review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of in the future. It really helps the algorithm do what it do to put the podcast in the faces of more beer and movie lovers out there in the world. Um, Quite quite a schedule coming up for the rest of January as we head into Oscar season. So hold on to your butts. Hit that subscribe button. It's going to be quite a wild ride uh, going forward from here. Until next time. Good that you have such a
0: sturdy sense of responsibility.